and welcome to TransAsia and the World. We're talking today about North Korea. Today's North Korea-related headlines include some heralding the North Koreans' return of 55 boxes that are said to contain the remains of American soldiers killed during the Korean War. Other headlines wrestle with reports that North Korea is continuing its nuclear development, despite Kim Jong-un's June agreement to denuclearize. The world might not be in the crisis mode it worried about last fall, but we at TransAsia Pod thought it would be helpful to bring you a special episode, looking back at some scholarly presentations from last September and reflecting on what they continue to show us about the North Korea situation. Eleven months ago, UW-Madison hosted a roundtable discussion about the North Korea crisis. Today, we're sharing the presentations of three of those involved, Professors Eun-suk Jung, Louise Young, and Andrew Kidd. You'll also hear the moderator of the roundtable, David Fields. I want to thank the East Asian Studies Department for letting me moonlight uh, away from my job in 18th century American history and into Korean, U.S.-Korean relations, where, uh, I, where I've done most of my study. So I've been asked very, quick, very quickly to just round up the events of this year in U.S.-North Korean relations in about a minute. And as I reflected on this, I thought it's quite interesting, uh, qualitatively, really how little new has happened this year. North Korea has tested ballistic missiles before. In fact, they've been testing them for a very long time. North Korea has tested nuclear weapons before. In fact, the first one was in 2006. North Korea has threatened American territories with annihilation before. In fact, they even threatened Guam with annihilation once before in 2013. North Korea has also abducted Americans before. In fact, they've been doing that for quite some time. However, this year feels a bit different in many respects. So while North Korea has been testing missiles for a long time, this year, perhaps for the first time, they've tested something that might properly be considered an ICBM. It, it really depends on which analyst you're asking, but it looks like their tests in July were over the 5,000 kilometer range, making it an ICBM. North Korea may, for the first time this year, have tested a hydrogen bomb. Now that is a matter of contention that analysts still disagree, but it's a real possibility we must consider. This year also, when North Korea threatened Guam, for the first time there was a sense that they might actually have the capabilities to carry out that threat. North Korea has made many threats. This seemed like a particularly credible threat. And of course this year, for the very first time, an American held in North Korean custody died while in North Korean custody. So in retrospect, it seems that what we are seeing this year, at least in my opinion, is less of a change in North Korean tactics and strategy, and rather an acceleration in the methods that they have been pursuing for some time. When you add to this acceleration the political instability in Seoul during the first half of this year, and the constant political instability in Washington, you have the making of what many commentators are already referring to as the North Korean crisis of 2017. So we're going to ask today, all panelists are going to address three questions. How did we get here? What has been the impact of these events? And what are possible outcomes and solutions? And I am dying to hear what they're going to say. These are very tough, tough questions.
Okay, thank you. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Dr. Shelley Chan and the Lori Dennis for organizing this at the very critical timing. And thank you all for coming to the round table today. I'll be speaking about South Korea's policies towards North Korea for the last 20 years in 10 minutes. <laughs> so, uh, I'll be brief uh, for the sake of time. So as you know, the South Korea considered North Korea as an enemy or as a serious threat, depending on the level of threat, will be indicated in the defense white paper uh, in Korea. However, at the same time, South Korea considered North Korean people as a part of one nation that eventually to be unified under one state. Although number of people that will agree with the unification has been decreasing uh, over time, so right now, uh, most one of the recent surveys will say 68% are actually against unification. So whether the South Korean government would emphasize North Korea as an enemy or as a one nation would depend on which party is the ruling party. And another factor that is important in South Korea's security policy is South Korea's um, loyalty or reliance on 67 years of South Korea-US security alliance that influences at the same time constrains South Korea's policies so currently we have 20,000 US troops are deployed in South Korea and two militaries are well integrated and also jointly trained. So I start from President Kim Dae-jung who came to uh, power in 1998, whose policy towards North Korea drastically departed from the previous administration. So when President Kim was elected in 1998, he implemented so-called very famous the Sunshine Policy. He, awarded, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2000 for implementing the policy, thereby easing the tension between South and North Korea. The main aspects of Sunshine policy are as follows. No armed provocation by the North will be tolerated. And South will not attempt, will not attempt to absorb the North in any way. The third, the South actively seeks cooperation. So on the third point, President Kim facilitated cultural diplomatic exchanges between South and North Korea. He provided unconditional assistance to North Korea for humanitarian concerns. About $2,400 million worth of money and materials were sent to North Korea. Um, numbers are conserv conservative numbers that I choose. And he initiated Mount Kumgang tourism uh, in collaboration of Hyundai Corporation and made agreement to build the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Kaesong is a city in North Korea. It's about 36 miles from Seoul. Um, that, that where South Korean businessmen could operate business in North Korea. Furthermore, he facilitated reunions of families who were separated by the Korean War during um, 1950 and 53. Reunions were arranged twice a year regularly Average about 6,000 family or 6,000 people were reunited every year under President Kim. The policy continued under the President Mu Hyun Ro. He inherited the uh, Sunshine Policy and renamed it as a Peace and Prosperity Policy. He maintained the general framework of the Sunshine Policy, but he aimed to establish a permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula and to promote the common prosperity in Northeast Asia. He opened the Kaesong Industrial Complex that, that was agreed on previous administration. About 10,000 families who were separated that have reunions every year by average. Overall, tensions had decreased between 
to Korea's under-progressive government and sunshine policy that both administrations implemented drastically increased economic, social, cultural exchanges. For example, Kaesong Industrial Complex had a total of 124 companies operated with industries like clothing, textiles, car parts, semiconductors, which is about nearly 1,000 South Koreans working there and about 54,000 North Koreans were hired uh, in the Kaesong Industrial Complex. In addition, about 2 million South Korean tourists visited Mount Kungang in North Korea, and about additional 100,000 visited the historical district of Kaesong. And the first time since the Korean War, the South Korean airlines flew freely over the North Korean airspace without a fear of attack, which saved a lot of money for airline companies, and plus other uh, symbolic impact. However, some conservative people criticized both administrations for the sunshine policy, for the reason that decade of sunshine policy weakened the US-Korean alliance at, at the same time that it enabled, they believe that it enabled the North Korea to build the nuclear weapons. So when a conservative government came in in 2003, can you imagine the sunshine policy was dropped under the President Lee in 2003. He introduced the Vision 3000. Vision 3000 offers one condition for economic changes between South and North Korea, which is denuclearization. Denuclearization first, then economic cooperation. So that was the motto of the government. He promised that if North Korea denuclearized, South Korea will help North Korea to have about 3,000 uh, GMP per person. And that did not go well. The North Korea considers its nuclear program as the most vital tool for regime survival. Under no, no circumstances that North Korea will give up on their nuclear weapon. As a result, that during the uh, President Lee, the number of military summits that uh, happened went down from previously 15 and uh, 29 to only four summits. And number of family reunions between two Koreas drastically decreased to 10,000, 3,000, 0. And Mount Kumgang program was basically abandoned in 2008 after North Korea's killing of a tourist. So similarly, President Kunhae Park, who came in to power in 2013, inherited President Lee's basic standpoint about North Korea. President Park proposed a trust politic uh, in alignment policy in foreign affairs that she contributed, a foreign affairs article that she contributed. It's kind of ironic that given her embedded distrust about North Korea due to partly also that history, the assassination of her mother by a North Korean sniper. But her policy trust policy approach had further froze the relationship between two countries. Under her presidency, U.S. military presence increased Drastically, um, she allowed, she imported the additional mi missile defense system and also opened the U.S.-South Korea joint naval base in Jeju. Uh, they mentioned that it was for North Korea, but it was more of that U.S. geo interest to contain against the uh, China, more, uh, more likely. So military summit only happened once between two Koreas and number of family unions Im immensely reduced Initially one year she had 2,000, and then next year 800, and then to zero. So overall, for the last 10 years, 
2008 to 2017, early 2017, under conservative government, relationships between uh, South and North Korea deteriorated. So I'll speed up. Um, so impeachment of President Park Geun-hye, the President Moon came in. Our, um, he wants to uh, try to revive the sunshine policy from the past. President Moon, however, faced the domestic pressure from the right, South Korean conservatives who believe that punishing North Korea with a no dialogue is the way to go and take side with the Trump. And also the Korean conservatives accuse uh, President Moon for endangering the alliance with the US, which has been their main concern. And at the same time, he's facing the irrational and impersonal policies of North, towards North Korea by the United States. It seems that President Moon's commitment to peace is only hope for the Northeast Asian security. To wrap up, I'm going to try to wrap up. Let's be rational and take back. North Korea, we knew that North Korea was making nuclear weapons in 1990s. It wasn't, a, it wasn't the news. We all knew. What happened? U.S. sanctioned, pressured North Korea for denuclearization. Multilateral dialogue that were in place were suspended. And for the part of those years, South Korean government, from 2008 to 16, fully supported U.S. position for disengagement and isolation of North Korea. The President Obama called it as a strategic patient. The waiting until North Korea is fully committed to dialogue. However, despite sanctions and pressures, North Korea was able to develop nuclear weapons. It demonstrates that sanctions and pressure alone do not work. All those years, sanctions and pressure still allowed North Korea to develop further their advance, their nuclear weapon capacity. Therefore, more sanctions and more pressure will not solve the problem. I believe the engagement policy towards North Korea will work better than trying to destroy a sovereign state. Even more than before, multilateral dialogue will be very, very much critical. And I would end this presentation with a quote from the Journal Foreign Policy, which is, greatest risk of more sanctions is a nuclear war, but greatest risk of sunshine policy is continuation of the status quo. Thank you. Um, welcome everybody. It's lovely to see such a full audience and thank you to everybody who organized. Um, this is a really wonderful event and very timely. Um, so my job here is to talk about Japan. I'm a Japanese historian. I want to start off by uh, saying a little bit about the context for the current nuclear um, test from the Japanese perspective goes back very much to the, the history that Charles Kim was talking about, Japan's defeat in 1945 in World War II. And what's, what's really kind of striking when you think about North Korea is that whereas it took Japan a really long time to kind of normalize its, relation, its diplomatic relations with all of its former colonies, basically um, South Korea was until 1965, China not until 1972, other countries the kind of reparations weren't wrapped up until the mid-1970s, but in the case of North Korea, there's never been a normalization, there's never been um, a, an end of World War II. So, you know, some of the, the um, difficulties in the Japanese-North Korean relationship has to be understood in that context. So even though there never, there's no North Korea, there's never been a North Korean embassy in Tokyo or vice versa, 
there has been an unofficial channel for uh, relations, and that's via the ethnic Korean community in Japan. And why is there an ethnic Korean community in Japan? Well, there, at the end of the war in 1945, there were two million Koreans in Japan. Small number had come over to study in Japan. Um, many more had come over in the 20s because they were dispossessed from their land in Korea. Their land had been taken by Japanese landlords. Uh, and then many more came over in the late 1930s as forced labor, worked in the mines and other kinds of really unpleasant places to work. Uh, so there were two million of them in 1945. Um, there was a, efforts to repatriate people that wanted to go to return, um, did, and about quite a, a majority went back, but there were still around 600,000 at the time of the um, Korean War. And at that point, the community kind of divided into two quite hostile factions as a result of the Korean War. And there was a group of Koreans in Japan that sided with the North and a group that sided with the South. The majority at that point were the sided with the North. But then this became the unofficial channel through which diplomacy and trade was engaged. So um, the headquarters of the, the North Korean, um, Korean and Japan group in Tokyo became the de facto kind of North Korean embassy. And that situation, and there was also um, trade exchange via the North Korean community as well. And that all sort of lasted until 2006 when the testing meant the end of it. And the Japanese government shut all this down. So the relationship has gotten even more difficult you know, since that time. So at this point, Korea, North Korea is kind of a, a, a continuing wild card in the shifting alliances and rivalries among major states in East Asia. But the US, I would say, is an equal wild card. And so you, you know, when you look at the People's Republic of China, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and Japan, there's lots of reasons, um, you know, those relationships have just kind of, you know, gone through all this turbulence and you, it's this multi-dimensional game of chess. You know, sometimes you're close to one, you're divided. The continuing shifts in American policy from the war on terror and kind of withdrawal to um, the most recent just head-spinning remarks that are getting, keep getting thrown out about, you know, Korea and Japan should nuclearize and threats to really withdraw from treaties. Um, all of this really makes things uh, volatile um, in the area. So I want to just, in the time that I have left, which I don't know, five minutes or something? Yeah. Um, I want to try to address two um, impacts on Japan. And one is the, the question of remilitarization, and then the other is the question of renuclearization. So, and both of these things, I would say, are, are kind of now being discussed. And this is unprecedented. I, you know, I just never thought I would hear myself saying these words, you know, because it's such a, it just seems like such a shift. So the issue of remilitarization, here I would say the, the Korean crisis is really accelerating a trend that was already underway and kind of precipitated by the growth of Chinese military power and also the North Korean kind of accelerating of those tests, especially from 2006. Um, but 
the current Prime Minister of Japan, Abe Shinzo, who's been in power since 2012, and he was really a you know very active player in politics before that as well. Um, he's a member of the long-serving Liberal Democratic Party, which has basically, it's called Liberal and Democrat, but really it's like very, very right-wing party. Um, it's been in power pretty much since 1952, with a few slight exceptions. But the, the thing about Abe is that his, his policies about kind of neo-militarism and remilitarization really are a departure from longstanding orthodoxy on the part of the LDP. And part of these policies are advocating a military buildup, um, you know, much more money being poured into weapons and military uh, power and, and so on, a much more active, proactive uh, partnership with the U.S. under the alliance, and also along with this, a push to revise the, the Japanese constitution. And this is also like of major significance, both sort of in political ideology and rhetoric, but, uh, but also the public support, public opinion underpinning this whole idea of constitutional revision. So. The Constitution, the Japanese Constitution that was signed in 1952, um, had this very famous so-called peace clause, the Article 9, that where Japan renounced its right to wage war. And the public support for that, and even you know, all 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 political parties kind of have you know come together around we are committed to the peace, the peace clause. Um, but in the last couple of years, Abe has forced through some um, significant revisions to that, which both allow military officers to come in and be part of central government. That's a big, big change. And also for Japan to um, not just engage in acts of self-defense, but age, engage their military in acts of collective self-defense, which is the kind of weasel word, but you know, basically means the military can be deployed more broadly. And the the recent sort of business of North Korea, two minutes, okay, um, lobbying um, missiles over, over Hokkaido, and um, Trump lobbying rhetorical missiles uh, over Japan, just I think uh, accelerates this trend that's already been underway, or you know, and and makes it easier for the Liberal Democratic Party to really engage in. A kind of propaganda war to um, pol or campaign rather to get the public on board with this. So to me, it's a really most unfortunate uh, kind of thing. And then just very quickly on the issue of nuclear, uh, the the nuclear question, even more so uh, the post-war Japan, Japanese political policy, the state and the public have been just absolutely committed to a no nukes policy. But this also is kind of uh, in the midst of, of, of shifting. And uh, I think this is a great segue to our next speaker, who's going to be talking about um, nuclear proliferation. Thank you very much. All right, thanks very much for coming, and thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Um, so I, um, I'm in the political science department. Uh, I study nuclear weapons. I teach a course on nuclear weapons. So I'm going to come at it from a slightly more hawkish perspective than uh, Unsuk did, perhaps. Uh, so we'll get a little bit of a debate going there, I think. 
uh, but perhaps not as hawkish as, as some people. Um, so I think the history has been laid out very nicely. Korea divided at the end of World War II. Korean War is still very much alive in the memory of people today uh, in, uh, in Korea, both North and South. Uh, very much recent history as far as North Koreans especially are concerned. Uh, the end of the Cold War, however, needs to be stressed here, right? The end of the Cold War in 1990 means that you have this era, uh, relatively brief as it turned out, of U.S.-Soviet rapprochement, Soviet Union then falls apart, uh, but the United States and Russia are still pretty close. Um, and under Yeltsin, uh, the Soviet Union, then eventually Russia, under Yeltsin, uh, basically starts divesting itself of all of its uh, previous economic dependencies, so the Cubans get cut adrift, uh, and they're suffering financially. And in particular, the North Koreans, for our purposes, get cut adrift. They lose their Soviet aid, and their economy really uh, goes into a tailspin. Uh, economic contraction is severe. Uh, famine is widespread in the countryside. Uh, uh, but the regime clings to power. Uh, that's an important lesson in terms of the survival instincts and abilities of the North Korean regime that we see still to this day. A crucial development that occurred as part of this process was that North Korea decided to pursue nuclear weapons. It's possible they decided earlier on, we don't know, but the program became manifest in the early 1990s. And the first sort of uh, big public manifestation of this was in 1994. There was some back and forth where North Korea was pressured by the Soviets, back when the Soviets were still there, to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, which would require them to uh, essentially reveal what their uh, nuclear activities were to the International Atomic Energy Agency. They thought they could do that and get away with hiding a bunch of stuff, but it turned out the IEA was a lot more technically capable than they imagined. And so it was revealed that the uh, North Koreans had been reprocessing plutonium, and we didn't know how much exactly, um, and so this became a crisis in 1994. This is the Clinton administration, 1994, a long time ago. And it became a very salient crisis. Uh, the Clinton administration tasked the DOD with coming up with war plans for the Korean Peninsula. The idea was we're going to nip this in the bud. We're going to destroy the North Korean nuclear facilities in Pyongyang uh, so that we don't have to face what we are now facing 25 years later, thereabouts, uh, down the road. So they were ready to fight. They were ready to go. But one thing deterred them, which was the vulnerability of South Korea to North Korean retaliation. Uh, that is, we knew that because the North Koreans had artillery implant, uh, installations near the DMZ that could target Seoul and surrounding communities, that even in the most optimistic scenarios of a South Korean slash US offensive into North Korea, we could not prevent tens of thousands of South Koreans from getting killed. So that was a deterrent for us in 1994 uh, when we could have nipped it in the bud. And because of that, we were reluctant to go in that direction. Uh, so we negotiated a deal, the agreed framework, as it was uh, memorably called. Uh, and that was an exchange, basically. The, South, the North Koreans agreed to stop producing uh, uh, fissile material for nuclear weapons. And we agreed to produce, <coughs> provide them with fuel oil and um, nuclear reactors. As it turned out, the North Koreans, uh, we, they promised essentially to stop producing plutonium, which is one fissile material which you can make bombs out of. They then started a covert program to produce highly enriched uranium, which is an alternative uh, material with which you can generate nuclear weapons. And so they, were, they had not actually stopped 
their pursuit of nuclear weapons, they just chose a different pattern. Uh, so the late 90s goes along, and eventually this is revealed uh, in the early Bush years, and uh, the agreed framework is done. So why has, uh, on the missile side, I won't dwell on it, but North Korea has been developing longer and longer range missiles. They've got a missile that could probably hit much of Alaska. The big question remains, do they have the capability to hit to fit a nuclear warhead on a missile and actually loft it very far. We don't know that for a fact. There's been some speculation that they might actually try to test that capability with a, a missile-launched warhead that detonates in the atmosphere, which would be quite dramatic, uh, to say the least. OK, so what about motivations? Right. I think the motivations have been touched on, but we need to think about them carefully. So for North Korea, I think motivation number one is regime survival. North Korea has a very weird regime. Uh, and it's very unstable uh, in a sort of macro sense. It's kind of stable tactically in the short term, but it's unstable in the long term. Why? Because of the existence of South Korea, right? South Korea is essentially the counter experiment that's been running for the past 70 years on the Korean Peninsula. It's much, much, much more successful than North Korea. And so the North Korean leaders look at that and realize that they're in uh, big trouble if the North Korean population ever really becomes fully aware of that. So North Koreans, Chief motivation is regime survival. South Korea, they want security, obviously. They don't want a repeat of, this, of the Korean War. They realize that they're vulnerable to North Korean weapons. They want denuclearization of the peninsula. American nuclear weapons actually left the South Korean, uh, left South Korea, and so we took out our nuclear weapons after the Cold War. There's some talk of us putting them back in again. Uh, but finally, and not, uh, not incidentally, the South eventually wants reunification. And you can do public opinion polls and talk about the costs of reunification all you like. But most people think that if given the chance, the South Koreans would leave at unification in the exact same way that the Germans did in 1990 when they had the opportunity. Uh, the nationalism is the most powerful political force uh, in the world, essentially. And, uh, it's fairly clear that South Korea would, would go in that direction. What about the United States? We want security, of course, um, in various ways. Uh, we want denuclearization also. Our goal all along has been denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, i.e. a verifiable end to the North Korean nuclear uh, program. But not incidentally, we want reunification as well. We want to destroy the North Korean regime. Let's, put no, uh, let's not beat around the bush about that. We want to destroy the North Korean regime, and for very good reasons. They're a despicable regime. They starve their people. They are brutal killers. They're one of the worst regimes on the planet. We would love for that regime to collapse and for Korea to be unified uh, under South Korean uh, rules. The North Koreans, not instantly, know that. Um, Japan, we've just heard about. I think their motivations are security, primarily humanitarian concerns to some extent. It does play into their nuclear uh, debate, which is very interesting. China, the most important player. China wants maintenance of a buffer zone against US power. That's what they wanted in 1950 when they fought the Korean War. That's what they want today. Uh, so they have a very strong interest in this situation as well. OK, what are the, what are the potential solutions to this problem? Uh, and I'll talk about three. Number one is what you can think of as the sort of standard approach, uh, which you can characterize as negotiations, normalization, and reform. So negotiations over the nuclear issue between the South and the North and more broadly, the six-party talks, which involve the United States, China, uh, North and South Korea, Japan, and Russia. Uh, right? Normalization, the sunshine policy, you try to uh, you know, fill them with kindness. You try to have great relations, trade, uh, person, interpersonal exchange, et cetera. 
and eventually economic reform in North Korea. That's not going to work. It's not incidental that it's been tried and failed for 30 years. Why isn't it going to work? Because North Korea can't become a normal state. Right? It's impossible for North Korea to survive as a normal state. Unlike China, unlike lots of the other post-Soviet uh, non-collapsing states, right? they cannot be a normal state for any length of time because South Korea exists and South Korea is uh, such a clear uh, example of the, the failures and crimes of the North Korean state. So they can't allow their um, uh, regime to open up, they can't become a normal state. China is never going to permit North Korea to fall to South Korea also. Unless, and we can talk about that in the Q&A if you like, unless we manage to persuade them that it's in their interest. But all this talk about getting China to pressure North Korea to get rid of nuclear weapons is not going to go anywhere because China will never put the kind of pressure on North Korea that would be required to get North Korea to get rid of nuclear weapons because that would endanger the survival of the North Korean regime, which is what China fought the Korean War to prevent 70 years ago. So that brings us to number two, which is currently in the, in the, in the news, prevent a war, uh, right? Why don't we just attack, just like we considered back in 1994? Uh, and Trump likes to talk tough about that. But we are deterred from preventive war by the exact same thing that deterred us in 1994, by the 20 to 30,000 South Korean lives that would end if we pursued that policy. There is no scenario. And even Steve Bannon, arch-hawk, arch-nationalist, admitted in a subsequent interview after he was safely out of office that military options are off the table because we've never solved the problem of how to protect uh, South Korean lives. And therefore, the South Koreans would veto it, and we wouldn't do it over a South Korean veto. That brings us to number three, deterrence. Right? We are going to live with this problem. We are going to admit North Korea into the family of nations that has nuclear weapons, and we are going to deter them, just as we deterred the Soviet Union during the Cold War, just as we deterred China, just as we deter other states as well. We are going to live with a North Korean nuclear weapon. Um, that strikes me as the most, most plausible scenario. We are going to fail in our efforts to denuclearize the peninsula, but we're just going to live with it. Um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much to the panelists for giving four very excellent uh, presentations. A lot to think about. As I was sitting here thinking, three questions were going through my head. And that is first, how do you assess North Korean intentions? Right. As Professor Kidd pointed out, one theory is that North Korea is seeking regime stability, or they're seeking regime survival. Another theory is that they're seeking security. Right? They're seeking security to alleviate the pressure that the United States places on them by its presence on the peninsula. But a third one is that they're seeking reunification of the peninsula on their own terms. And how you assess those three attention really colors the way you understand this problem in a fundamental sense. All right? And I think you can see that some of our panelists understand things one way, some of our panelists understand things another. The second is when do talks become unproductive? As Professor Kidd mentioned, you had the 1994 agreed framework. You also had the six-party talks, which stretched on through the late aughts. There's been multilateral attempts at talking with North Korea before, and they have generally come up short. But at the other, on the other hand, what option do we have? So how do you assess when is it done to start to stop? When is it done? When are talks done, and when do you need to move on to other options? And then the third thing that was running through my mind as I was listening to this is, what are the costs of the status quo? And I think this really hits on Professor Young's presentation. 
The status quo is actually, what we think of as the status quo, is actually ratcheting up, all right? Even under the Sunshine Policy, it's when North Korea tests nuclear weapons for the first time in 2006 under Nobu Young. So there is a cost to the status quo. Right now, there are talks in Japan about rearming. There are talks about nuclear weapons. During my last year in Seoul, one of the most chilling conversations, or some of the most chilling conversations I had, was with South Korean conservatives who were actually somewhat gleeful at the thought of Americans pulling out of South Korea so they would have the opportunity to develop their own nuclear weapons. All right? There is a cost to the controversy, the crisis, running the way it is. Join us in part two of this episode for our recent conversation with the panel's moderator, David Fields. Check out our website at transasiapod.history.wisc.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter at TransasiaPod. TransAsia and the World is sponsored by the University of Wisconsin's Department of History. And our artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall. <laughs>